The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many of you have, and we often receive instructions, um, the sort of formal, structured way of teaching loving-kindness practice that comes out of the Vasudhimaga, which is a collection of teachings from this monk, Buddhaghosa from oh, six or so hundred years after the time of the Buddha. But it's important to realize there are literally an infinite number of ways to reflect on loving kindness. And most importantly, we have to find our own way. We have to sort of follow our own intuition, our own way in to what is It's really the nature of the mind when it isn't obscured by greed, anger, and delusion. That's what love is. That's why sometimes in the tradition we use, emphasize more non-aversion or the absence of the mind obscured with greed, anger, and delusion. But anyway, just your reflections, what worked, what didn't work, questions about the instructions before we go on. Marcy. I have a question. During the loving-kindness meditation, sometimes there's almost like a floaty feeling. And I wondered, is that helpful, not helpful, doesn't matter? Uh, Well, everything matters in the sense that it's the way it is. And to to be unaware of it then can actually get in the way because part of metta is this willingness to include... And, uh, but it's like uh, metta, loving kindness meditation is an exclusive or directed meditation practice as opposed to (coughs) like normal mindfulness practice where when it's stable, we basically open to whatever's predominant, the sort of biggest experience or the most predominant experience in the moment, we say yes to that. But with this practice, we're on purpose not letting the attention go to what's difficult. We're training the attention to keep going back to what's beautiful and good. So in that sense, we call it a directed meditation. We're directing the attention or exclusive meditation. That, like, No, it's just this. We're just noticing what's good, what's beautiful, and by definition then what's pleasant. So that floaty feeling might be associated with more concentration, more steadiness of attention. Um, But the relevant thing isn't the floaty feeling, but is it pleasant? So if it's pleasant, then include the pleasantness with the sense of being, saying yes to everything, yes to the body, yes to the whole world of experience, exhaling, loves, radiating out that good feeling, So if we do have a pleasant feeling, bodily or otherwise, mental or bodily feeling, it's useful to sort of take it in. It's like a kind of um, uh, that beauty, the pleasantness of that actually will help the generosity of the heart because the heart feels more generous when it feels good. When When the heart, mind, body feels heavy, unpleasant, then we tend to be in a more contracted, stingy, 
aversive state. So it is really useful um, as, the, as the state of mind becomes altered, you could say, right? Because concentration, the steadiness we get in meditation, it's an altered state of consciousness. It's not the kind of consciousness we have when we're arguing with our partner or driving in traffic or throwing, down, throwing food down our mouths or, you know, the other things we do during the day. It's an altered state when we have that steadiness. And that is a beautiful, there's some pleasantness, even if it's not like powerfully pleasant a lot of the time, but sometimes maybe. But even if it's not strongly pleasant, even if it's just a little pleasant, bring that in. Notice that as part of the beauty that you're breathing in with the in-breath and you're sending out with the out-breath. And it's that circulation of dana, generosity, that Judy's going to talk about in just a minute. Yeah, thanks, Marcy. Questions or comments about the sit tonight? Yeah, Dan, want to get the mic? Or somebody pass it over to Dan? Okay. Uh, I I really like the um, focus on forgiveness. And um, one thing for me was useful is um, instead of a kind of general uh, and and sometimes vague, you know, well-wishing, it kind of let me know where I was at. <laughs> you know, are there things that are difficult for me to forgive myself for or for, to forgive someone else for? And, and it was a way of kind of checking in with, okay, how are things at with, you know, that with me? And so I, I like that focus because it, it sort of helped me attend to, you know, what you, what you might think of as areas that I need to work on. Or Say something. that last part a little louder. I missed I, it helped me attend to, you know, things that I, I need to, yeah. you know, kind of em- embrace or work on or, you know, kind of, um, yeah, I mean, I just, just, I would say just work on and, and be aware of, right? Yeah. Because those are the kinds of things I think that, um, at least in my experience, they are frequently operative in the way that I act, but I like to not pit. <laughs> I like to not think about them, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I found that really helpful. And it's nice because it's like Dan is suggesting that was a more specific uh, part, right, where we're sort of... And in these very real relationships, there's a lot of life energy locked up in places where we haven't been forgiven, we haven't forgiven, haven't forgiven ourselves. It's like life energy is locked up. It, so it feels hard or heavy, tight. And so even if, you know, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to resolve all of that. But even if we loosen the screws, open up a little bit, it, it makes the, where we go from there, it makes it much more real. Because we're starting with the weight and the way that the energy of life is being constrained or held through ideas like, you know, unfinished business here, unfinished business there, you know, and we assume that the best way to deal with that unfinished business is to be unaware of it. And so when you do a forgiveness reflection, you're just, you're taking a different approach that the best way to deal with that unfinished business is to connect with it because then it begins to move a little bit. And we start to feel the energy of life, which is the same thing, the energy of love. There's not like, the movement of nature is not different than metta or loving kindness. 
Yeah. Time for maybe one more. Ian, you want to share with the group? Um, is there a turn or is there something different that you then do when these things start to move? It strikes me that maybe they would not be ending. As in, like, they would keep coming. And so this uh, comes up for me this week was not specifically sitting down to do forgiveness practice. And um, many things started to come up for me, particularly instances from my history that were, like, squandering of life. Just like, oh, I wish I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I should have done this. Uh, Much, much more than normal. Uh, And in particular were feelings of regret. And yet it seemed like it could just keep going and going and going and going and... Uh, how is one? How does one engage? Yeah, hold it right at your. Point. How does one engage to do it uh, practically or usefully? Yeah. So Ian, if you didn't catch that middle part, he was just saying that things felt like they just keep going. And how does one engage that? And remember, there is a p- particular principle that is uh, a, that the, is this metta or loving kindness practice, which is it's really about not letting the attention dwell on the negative, right? So we're on purpose not letting the attention dwell on the negative. So we do, it's actually good when things start to move, but as, like, especially if it's a lot of painful things, regret, um, remembering times when we've caused harm or things like that, there's two ways to look at that. One is to look at what's painful about that And the other is to look at that it's good that it's moving, that it's good that it's being acknowledged, right? It does feel good that it's moving, even though what's moving is unpleasant, like the feeling of regret, but that it's moving is pleasant. So that's the trick, because remember, love includes compassion, where we're actually paying attention to suffering, but... What makes compassion enlivening and liberating is that the love, the compassion is moving, like we're engaging, we're saying yes, we're willing to be close, we're willing to feel compassion, that movement, wanting to respond. If there's something to do, wanting to do it, not wanting to do it in order to make, to sort of make the pain go away, but because that's the circulation of that love. So that's the key, is to experiment with how to trust the movement. But it does feel overwhelming. That's generally why we start where it's easy. You know, we always joke, like, we'll bring the easy person to mind. It's not complicated. and So not immediately to go to the difficult places where that circulation, that movement, brings up a lot of pain. You know, if something's been tightly closed for a long time, when it starts to open, our whole world gets shook because part of who we are is the lockdown, being locked down. Like, I'm the one who doesn't feel that place, doesn't see that stuff. And so then when we do the practice and it starts to move, it's like the whole earth starts to move. So we need to start where it's easy and we're learning to trust the movement and the expansiveness of the immeasurableness of these states of love, compassion, equanimity, and joy. And then when we get into that difficult territory where there's a lot of pain, 
so that it sort of seems a little, well, certainly paradoxical, but even more strange and unnerving. It's so incredibly painful and it's so incredibly beautiful and liberating. And both are true. And so we want to pay attention to this because if we pay attention to this, it's going to trigger, I don't trust it, i got to close down, this is too much. Where is this going to end, right? But here, it doesn't matter that it may not end. You know, maybe it doesn't end. Maybe once we ventilated all of our own suffering, we start ventilating the suffering of the world, the endless trauma that has been caused, you know, the the trauma of being the perpetrator and the trauma of being the victim in the past, present, future, like all of, all of that, the heart breathes in and loves and cares and, re, and sort of responds to. That's the idea, you know, no... Nothing closed off. But thanks for sharing that. And we'll do some reflections in just a minute, but I want to give Judy a few moments to share a little bit about Donna, just as a, you know, and then somebody can do it in the fall course too, if anybody's interested who's been around for a few years or longer. So thanks, Judy, for volunteering. And maybe you could pass the mic over to Judy. Um, I think many of us, or probably all of us, I'm not quite sure, are aware of the way the center operates on Donna, which is that we receive all of these teachings freely. And we can enjoy that and just take heart in that. And what I've been thinking about in relation to Donna is just really paying attention. Um, I think the one of the things that always strikes me the most is um, this is such a gift. And I think it's, it can be forgotten what a gift this is. And one of the aspects of the gift is that there is trust. And so this, there's a trust in the center that people are aware and they're receiving these teachings and and really it's it's something that's in our hearts and we want them to continue and we're grateful and so we we give to the center. Um, so I I think I'm just struck myself just I mean really I am in awe of the amount of trust that has to operate for this system, you know, to work. And it does work. At the same time, because it's working, we can become complacent. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, we walk in here. Well, the building's already here. It was already built. The lights are on. The floor, you know, Mark shows up. And if he's not here, someone else shows up in his absence because he's arranged for that. And all these things are happening. And I think it it can we can become complacent to just think oh this just is a wheel that just happens to roll on its own <laughs> but actually not you know and so i guess um my reflection is just for us to really take a moment when we especially when we are leaving this room 
and just kind of really take a moment like, oh, you know, this this is Donna. We're receiving and we're giving and I'm a part of this. It's not outside of me. So, Thank you so much, Judy. And if you're planning to do the fall class and would like to do the little Donna talk like uh, Judy just did, it's just so nice to hear people speak from their heart about their own way of relating and understanding and being part of the community. And it's exactly like Judy said, this is why it's here, because we're all participating in the way we're participating, and together it makes this what it is. So just let me know, and uh, we'll figure out a week that works in your schedule to do it during the fall class, which is, you can now sign up for, by the way, we'll be continuing, continuing with the four foundations of mindfulness And I'm going to be teaching down in North Carolina, so it's going to start a week later than usual. I think it's Monday the 20th or Monday the 21st, maybe the 21st, Monday the 21st of September. Um, So join us for that. So I thought what would be nice tonight for the rest of our time, we have another 40 minutes, I'll just give four topics that we can then talk in groups of four about. So we'll have a little bit bigger small group tonight than we normally do. And usually we have three, but we'll have four tonight because Dharma Corps is in the community room. So most of us will be here. A few of you can be down in the basement under this room, but not in the old workshop space. And groups could also go outside if it's warm enough. And here are the four topics. And I'll spend a little time with each of the four to kind of open them up. But just in terms of what we've been talking about, this circulation of nature of energy, of love. So it's the mind or the heart that's not fixed. right? When our mind is under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion, which, of course, is often has the flavor of fear. I don't have enough. I need more. So when the mind is under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion, then there isn't that circulation. There's a holding or a friction, a non-love, right? we say. So some principles... One is, and I mentioned this like in terms of our homework last week, so it's a bit of a review, but remember that phrase um, that Maha Gosananda, that famous Cambodian monk, chanted in the Thai refugee camps um, where all the people who left during the killing fields in Cambodia. Hatred does not cease by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal truth. So basically, and this is something all of us, you know, we're starting to get in our bones. It's not, we don't believe it because the Buddha said that phrase. We believe it because our experience has taught us aversion doesn't work. Hatred, ill will, fear, irritation, impatience is not a functional attitude. It never contributes to my well-being or the well-being. And, and the challenge for those who, were, who weren't here last week was like, let's, and you can continue, <laughs> there's no end to this homework. It's like, where in our lives do we justify aversion? Because on some unconscious level, we think it's rational, it's functional, it helps. A lot of activists, you know, it's a common question here, you know, if I were, weren't angry, I'm not going to fight for justice or something like that. And so to really look, well, is the anger helping? So this could be something you talk about in the small group when it's your turn. It's like, 
However, you're learning that lesson or the places where you doubt the truth of what the Buddha said, that hatred doesn't cease with hatred, that good things don't come from hatred. You know, So then challenge that notion and express that. Or maybe you're finding the truth in that. I'll just share a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho um, writing about this. I'll just read a couple paragraphs real quick. This is from one of my favorite articles, um, and it's on our website. Um, it's unfortunately it's just uh, scanned because this isn't online. So I, we just scanned a few par- uh, pages from a book, and it's his article. Nothing is left out, and it's all about that's how he describes metta, the experience of nothing being left out. And he says in the middle of that article, this means accepting everything in us: the dark side, the selfish side, the proud, conceited side as well as the virtuous and good. Metta isn't about finding fault with ourselves, but about accepting the meanness of heart, our desire for revenge, the pettiness or stupidity we might feel at times. Having metta for our own moods, our own emotional habits, enables us to let them be what they are, to neither indulge in them nor reject them, but to recognize this is my mood, this is how it feels. The attitude is one of patience, non-aversion, and kindness. What often confuses us is our idealistic concepts of what we should be. For example, some, may, some of you might think, I, should, I shouldn't want revenge for the victimizers. Ajahn Sumedho says I should have metta for them. And then you might feel, no, I can't include everyone, it's too hard. I can have metta for everyone else, but not that totally hateful person. What can be done in that moment is to have metta for that very feeling, finding an attitude of kindness rather than criticism, knowing it for what it is, not indulging or repressing it, but simply being patient with that particular state as it is present, as it is in the present moment. So just this great faith in non-aversion, this, you know, over time, this great and unshakable faith in non-aversion. So that's one thing you might talk about in your small group. And then another is, another reflection that you might share with your small group is like your intuitive sense of the basic goodness of the heart. Something that's actually beautiful in the heart. And I love this from, I forget if I mentioned this last week, so I want to say it again if I didn't. But Joko Beck, one of our great matriarchs of Western Buddhism, she's dead now, but uh, taught for many years in a relatively small Zen center in San Diego, um, but became quite popular. She wrote two wonderful books you can get, Ordinary Zen and, anybody remember her other book? Everyday Zen? Yeah, every day Zen is definitely one. What's the other one then? Yeah, anyway, look up Joko Beck. But what I like that she says about metta, she talks about it in terms of mushiness, like an ice cube. Somehow, when the refrigerator, you know, we get out of the freezer, we get out of the habits of greed, anger, delusion, and things settle for a while, And that ice cube realizes its basic mushiness before it gets thrown back into the freezer, right? 
But it, he, she says, but once an ice cube notices its watery nature, it never forgets mushiness, right? It doesn't matter how hard, how brittle, you know, the ice becomes. It can't forget that in its nature, not only is it watery, but it's essentially vapor, because that's what water is. So this is the thing, like when we get interested in our basic goodness of the heart, we notice something that is actually true, even though it's not always manifesting, but it's still, it doesn't make it not true when we're angry, when the heart is, heart is hard. So it's that's the that's a nice image for basic goodness, and I'll share a poem. Many of you, most of you, probably have heard many times, but it is worth repeating. Galway Canal, Saint Francis, and the Sow. And the first part is especially beautiful. He uses the image of a bud. He says, "The bud stands for all things." So you can think of the bud as basic goodness in the heart. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower, or you could say everything things that aren't beautiful. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put the hand on its brow, to put a hand on its brow of, a, of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Right, to recognize that. And this is what Ajahn Sumedha was pointing to in that last couple of paragraphs that I read, that I might be in a really defensive state right now, or I might really want revenge because somebody's hurt me, but I can have metta for that feeling of wanting revenge. I can relate to the hardness of my heart in a soft, mushy way, in a loving way. And that's that um, intuiting or not forgetting the basic goodness of the heart. Jack Kornfield has this great reflection. He says we should do, he says we're going to do on our deathbed, but we should do before we get to our deathbed, right? Because it's a little too late. (laughs) Did I love well? That's a nice reflection like right now. Did I love, like today, did I love well today? Did I live fully, like without fear? Did I learn something about letting go? Have I learned to let go? Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? And this is, this really, I think, points us just asking those questions. We wouldn't ask those questions from any other place than this basic goodness. And one of the most easily accessed uh, place for this basic goodness is recognizing I care about this life. And that's the place we're going to ask the question. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn something about letting go? Letting be. And then one last thing in this area. So we're talking like you might talk in your small groups about your actual experience 
your growing confidence in basic goodness. And uh, to kind of move away from an idealistic sense of what that might be like. This is from Mother Teresa. She says, in this life we cannot do great things. Right? So get away from that idea of that perfect saint radiating love in all directions. And she says, instead, we can only do small things with great love. Right? In this life, we cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. So when we intuit, like when you talk about in your small group, your own experience with basic goodness, it might seem silly to mention it. You know, you were just locking your bicycle up. But, you know, the the depth of appreciation for your lock and its functionality you know, and the, just that, that just that simplicity and that purity of appreciating the bike, or appreciating the physical vigor of your body to be able to ride the bike, or whatever. Something simple like that can be done with great love. Can be more meaningful than showing up to a food shop once a week for ten years. You know, and wondering why your friends don't notice or something like that, right? So simple moments of reveals basic goodness. You know, taking time to actually wash your hands and not feel rushed. I, I noticed as I was kind of a little sort of gross, but, you know, today I was using the toilet and I, and I just had one of those moments like, I can just show up this moment. I don't need to be rushed or in a hurry. It's like respecting the bodily process and doing it right. I notice more and more I forget to zip up my zipper. (laughs) It's like (laughs) maybe I should really be there and the experience it might help. (laughs) You don't know what else I'm forgetting. (laughs) I did wash my hands. And then uh, the last thought I had about um, another reflection you can do, well, actually two more. One is just about the safety. I mentioned this at the end of the guided meditation. Like when you're orienting around basic goodness of metta, loving kindness, just your experience of safety like and, and the resilience or the how that sense of safety is showing up more often and in places where you would otherwise not feel so safe, you feel a little bit more safe. So just the, the growing pervasiveness of a sense of safety in an insecure world where there isn't control, the heart still feels safe. So this is a true refuge, right? Instead of refuge and having people think about you in the way you want them to think about you, the refuge is in the generosity of the heart, like, Loving well, not having something, but loving well, because then the conditions can challenge your safety, your refuge, because you can love well no matter the conditions, no matter the twists and turns of our lives. So that's the third, safety, just your own experience of safety and how it relates to a sense of love or metta. And then the 
the fourth is maybe some in some ways a little bit more abstract, but the experience of boundless or the you know sometimes the word used is uh, translated as immeasurableness of love, like there are literally no boundaries. It doesn't. There's nowhere it doesn't go. There is nothing that can't be included. And your own experience about how you might have felt it initially in an interaction with a particular person, just a really beautiful, simple sort of movement of playful, loving. And it wasn't really about the conversation, but it was about the sense of appreciation and joy in that. And then and then in the moments after that interaction, you realize that the beautiful feeling, that movement of life, wasn't actually about that person or about that conversation because now you have it in the walking and then in the next interaction with another being and then the next thing. And you realize that it isn't about a particular experience. Love is unconditional. It isn't about a particular condition, circumstance. But we might find it in a particular circumstance, but then we want to realize that it isn't actually about that circumstance. So that's something you could share in your small group too. Okay. So again, the conviction that non-aversion doesn't make sense, and that's powerful. Like just in your bones. And then the second thought that you might want to dig into is sort of your own experience of contacting, realizing basic goodness, that basic mushiness, trusting that, trusting that it's there even when you don't feel it, that it's still there. The third is the sense of safety that arises the more we're in touch with love or basic goodness. And then the fourth is your experience. Now, you're not going to be able to talk about all four of these things, um, of something that, uh, in your own experience, seems immeasurable, unconditioned, can go anywhere, show up anywhere, any circumstance. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.